Welcome back to Hour 3 here of the Pete Callender Show on WBC Radio. And just a reminder, you can pick up any shows or listen for streaming on WBT.com. If you need to get any updates on shows and other happenings at the station, social media is at WBT Radio. All right. My name is Brad Slager, as I said, filling in for Pete. And I am the um, I'm kind of the media antagonist, if it were, over at townhall.com. As such, I wanted to bring on one of, say, one of our bigger figures over at Town Hall. Julio Rojas is our field rep. I don't know. Probably my first question for you, Julio. What is your official title with Town Hall? Are you the uh, hot zone representative? Uh, That's kind of my informal kind of uh, title. But my official title is uh, senior writer. And it's vague on purpose because, you know, as... As you alluded to, I, I like to do things other than just sit in an office and write. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll explain it for everybody. Julio probably has the coolest job at Town Hall because whenever anything flares up of a controversial nature, you're on the jet and getting right on the ground. <laughs> you are. Uh, I'm kind of jealous of you. I got to be honest with you. And Julio, you were uh, a big fixture during the 2020 riots. You were. How many cities did you go to altogether? Uh, over a dozen. Wow. And you uh, you were firsthand to all of the uh, mayhem that took place on the streets. Julio has written a great book. I recommend this to everybody that's even interested in this topic. It's called Fiery, but Mostly Peaceful, The 2020 Riots and the Gaslighting of America. And this, uh, this really strums me on a couple of levels because of what I cover in the press. You saw firsthand what was taking place and then how the media was manipulating the reality on the streets. What, what did you see that just kind of stood out the most as far as what they were not reporting? I mean, what, what was significant is just that when there was violence at these riots, I mean, that's what makes it a riot, not a protest, um, is that they were real. And it was, uh, it was hard to ignore when you're there because when there's fires and looting and people getting attacked and beat up and people attacking cops, I mean, it's kind of hard to, uh, you know, ignore what's, what's happening in plain view. But, you know, the mainstream media, because of, you know, the, the broader movement that was uh, participating in these riots, you know, the Black Lives Matter and then later on Antifa, uh, they didn't want to highlight those aspects because it was going to damage the overall narrative about how we need racial not racial uh, equality, you know, that's, that's the old, that's, you know, that's 1960s. We're all about racial equity now and all this, you know, we need all these radical progressive changes in order to atone for our, you know, past sins of, of racism and, and what have you. And so when you combine all that together, it's just, it's going to cloud their judgment, uh, the, the media, and to actually tell people what's, what's really happening. Or even just, even if they are going to tell you what's happening, they're going to mischaracterize it by saying, oh, well, it was a, you know, mostly peaceful protest. Or, you know, like the title of my book, it was fiery, but it was mostly peaceful. Yeah, that's been the amazing aspect of this, is that your reporting was there and showing what took place. I mean, there was, you did one remote where you actually got hit with some ordinance while you were live on the air. Correct. Uh, so it was, it wasn't when I was on TV. It was, uh, I was shot with a rubber bullet in Minneapolis. This was the second day that I was there. This was the day after the third precinct was overrun and, 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 and set on fire, uh, by, I was shot by a Minnesota state trooper. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you they, they don't, they don't feel too, 
feel too good. No, no, I imagine not. And this this is the amazing thing is, you know, I've seen a couple of your hits. You were on Fox and such. And how do you, you know, how do you gloss over this? I know what the media likes to do is say, well, it was only a few city blocks or just a couple miles, but there's 140 square miles in Seattle. So it wasn't that big a deal. Yet, for instance, we were just up in Tampa six or seven Nazis show up and suddenly that becomes the focus of the entire conference that was filled with 10,000 conservatives, you know, so their balance shift is pretty convenient. Um, Speaking of Seattle, though, I got a lot of questions for you regarding what went on there with Chaz slash chop, because you actually got inside that zone, correct? Yep. Yep. I was there. And what I, man, I got so many questions in such a little time. First off, the residents, I was surprised to read, were somewhat supportive of this, even though they had taken over an area where they were both residing and conducting business. How accepting were they of this takeover? Well, so at the beginning, they were they were actually pretty um, accepting of what was happening because, you know, again, you know, this is Seattle. This is, you know, a big part you know, progressivism, and, you know, it's not, they're not just Democrats, right? They're progressives, they're radical progressives. So at the beginning, they were generally supportive of the idea. They, they did kind of wanted to see, like, okay, what direction are you guys going to take this now that you do have this kind of area to yourselves? And, you know, people were offering ideas. They were providing donations of, you know, food and medical supplies and all this other stuff. But as time went on, that, that kind of quickly went away because uh, they had set up barricades. Right, the, the occupiers in this area, and there was about three to four, you know, apartment complexes or housing a- areas that were directly affected by it. You know, so people couldn't just willingly drive the cars out of the parking garage. They had to like, coordinate with who was right. ever occupying the barricades <laughs> at the time to um, to let them to be able to let them to leave and then to you know come back. And so you know, who who wants to deal with roadblocks of any kind? <laughs> and so sure. Uh, and then, of course, then there was the crime that followed. I mean, cause there's no police, right? And so there were attempts to self-police, but of course, you know, this is a very progressive idea of self-policing too. And so, I mean, it, it became a very, it became a pretty dangerous area. And this is a typical, and normally this is kind of like a, uh, just, uh, you know, a, a yuppie part of, uh, you know, where, you know, all these like new, up and coming people are trying to, you know, make their stake in the world, and that now all of a sudden they got to deal with uh, an entire area just being kind of do people do whatever they want. One of the other surprising parts, and I think this went very underreported, is that you know we saw for whatever reason the Seattle government, the municipal government, just turn things over to them, just back away, and we saw similar things take place in Portland, where the mayor there was just you know appeasing Antifa. But you reported that inside Chop, Chaz, whichever they were going by, they hated the authorities. Yeah, and I'm I mean, just curious, that, what was what possessed our government officials to turn things over to people that wanted them out in the first place? Yeah, that was that was I mean, it was surprising to see a little bit, but it also it kind of wasn't because, again, I mean, the mayor, Jenny Durkin, at the time, she was, I mean, that's how we got the Summer of Love, <laughs> uh, you know, talking point that, that later turned into a meme right. on the right, because that's what, she, that's what she was defending. She said, oh, you know, it could be like a street festival, it could be a Summer of Love, but everyone in there hated her. 
because she wasn't she wasn't radical enough in their eyes. They wanted to completely abolish the Seattle Police Department. Like we weren't even talking about defunding. We're talking about them getting right. rid of the the department altogether. And so, uh, because she wasn't willing to go that far, they were signing petitions to do a recall vote, essentially. And and they she did visit one time at the very edge by kind of the the garden area and again she was saying oh look how you know cool this is it's nice to see people being out during covid which you know of course you could be out for that but not not for anything else well that uh, was yeah, the other contradiction how- we saw from these protests too that you're allowed to right. protest you're just not allowed to go to restaurants well julio i appreciate your time sorry i gotta cut you off here but go check out his book this is deeply informative fiery but mostly peaceful by Julio Rojas. Thanks so much for coming on. Julio loved it. We'll talk soon. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to the Pete Callender Show. This is Brad Slager sitting in for Pete. And uh, we had just spoke with Julio Rosas from Town Hall, the field rep and hot zone individual for our site. And the pretty much the biggest takeaway, from apart from the violence and, and all the destruction, billions of dollars across the country regarding the Black Lives Matter protest, was the approach by the media. The, the insistence on them gaslighting, and I'm not only talking about the, the glaring examples where we had Ellie Velshi from MSNBC standing in front of a building that was engulfed in flames and talking about how everybody's mostly peaceful. And CNN had a similar episode where they stood in front of an arson building declaring that everything's going fine and, and it's just normal out here. But that, those are just the, the glaring examples. The overall messaging has been the issue, and it continues throughout these days, too. Because recall, this was an era, the summer of 2020, when we were not allowed to go out. We, we, we were not permitted to dine six feet away from other people. And yet, protests were perfectly acceptable. You know, people could pack in on the streets and CNN would even go so far as to have a doctor come on and say, well, the protesting and the issues that they're addressing are, are actually more important than COVID safety. You know, they had to massage their message on the fly. It got so bad that there was events taking place at the White House in the Rose Garden outside at night complaining that Donald Trump was staging this, you know, that how dare these people during COVID get together in such close proximity. And this was completely combated by the fact that at the Rose garden event, somebody turned around and shot a picture of the press. They were up on a riser packed shoulder to shoulder, many of them without masks on complaining about the people in the Rose Garden seated next to each other with masks on. And then further, that very same week, protests were taking place in D.C., just down the street from the White House, 
those were acceptable. Oh, but they're outside, was the explanation. So was the Rose Garden event, you fools. And this is the kind of thing we have to contend with, is that even when you try to hold the press to their own rules, they can come up with their own set of new rules and exceptions and excusals. And this is something that is just perpetual in the media. And I think the basis of this frequently, if not always, is that they go into a lot of these news events with a pre-written agenda. I've talked about this before. They already know what they're going to write. They just have to get enough of the components to fit the storyline, and then they can have their report. So we saw this take place. Uh, calling back to a story from last week that we covered. Marco Rubio came out right after I just interviewed Jennifer Venlar on Friday about George Gasson and all the other district attorneys who have been funded by George Soros and installed across the country in order to revamp and revolutionize prosecutions by basically not prosecuting. This is something that has taken place. It's provable. You can verify this has gone on. Soros money can be tracked to these individual district attorney election campaigns. It, it's just, You can't argue the fact. And so what happens is when you bring up that fact, as Marco Rubio did over the weekend, talking about how George Soros funded this, the answer is anti-Semitism. Because George Soros happens to be Jewish. Therefore, if you invoke the name George Soros, you're invoking anti-Jewish sentiment somehow. No, we're opposing a billionaire who is actively looking to transform this country with his money. That's not all Jewish people. That's George Soros alone. And there was another example over the weekend of this pre-written narrative, let's say can call it that, where the press goes into something with their script and they just have to find the proper players. This took place on MSNBC and um, Lawrence O'Donnell was out. So he had a fill-in host and a panel who, uh, let's just say, clearly already had things lined up. <laughs> And did so in comical fashion. It's You have to shake your head at times when this sort of thing happens. But Lawrence, as I said, was out. And so Zerlina Maxwell was the fill-in host. And she had on Kurt Bardella and Professor Christina Greer talking about the GOP and how racist they are and how established this racism is. And then there's a little bit of a problem, and that is there's a growing number of minorities who are jumping over to the GOP when it comes to voting. And polls are showing more blacks and certainly more Hispanics are leaning towards the Republican Party in the upcoming midterms. So how do we explain this away? Well, the professor says, we also realize, you know, you don't need white people for white supremacy anymore figure that out yet? No, because 
The Republicans use their white supremacist rhetoric and chip away at certain Latino, Asian, and black populations across the country. So the GOP is so racist that they're luring minorities over, and those minorities become racist by extension, I suppose. Welcome back to WBT Radio. This is the Pete Callender Show. I'm Brad Slager, filling in for Pete. He'll be on vacation through tomorrow. Comes back Wednesday, so you'll get a break from Florida Man eventually. And I wanted to get a little bit of a break here as well from all of the intense and all of the hard news we've been covering and bring a little bit of levity or at least a lighter side of things. Although... uh, it just occurred to me, Jim, here we are on the radio talking about the visual arts. I've got on the line with me, red state political cartoonist, Jim Thompson. How's everything going out in California, Jim? It's, uh, it's hot, uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's California, so I guess it's okay. Just expensive. Okay, so, it's, uh, so, so things are still insane out there is what you're telling me. <laughs> yeah, always. Okay, good, good. Status quo is what I was looking for. I wanted to bring you on, Jim, because, uh, you know, over the years, I've been a big fan of political cartooning, and I think that it's just, it's a great form of messaging for anybody to be able to distill what's taking place in our society in such a, uh, such a piece of brevity with a lot of artwork and stuff. And your stuff, I love it on the site, obviously. Great addition for us at Red State. Do you... Over the years now, you know, it seems like almost like the heyday of political cartoons might have been the 70s and 80s. Do you agree that there's a little bit of a downslide with that form? Wait, wait, are you trying to tell me that I'm old and I remember back in the 70s and 80s? Because I do. I do. Well, I'm, yeah. I wasn't trying to. I was being actually right up front with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, so. Yeah. The, that uh, that uh, is not a, a bad characterization. 70s and 80s were... Um, or the heyday, the the zenith, the uh, uh, the time to be a, a political actor. and they made a lot of money doing it too. I can tell you that. Yeah, that was probably a big a big change of things. For some reason, the you know, once we entered into the electronic age, I I would have thought if you had approached me, let's say in the early nineties, and said, you know, once the internet opens up, that this would have opened up a landscape for political cartooning and be even more broad. And it instead, it seems to be contracting. I don't know if there's any reason behind that. Do you have any idea why that's taking place? Yeah, you know, I, uh, I don't have a reason. It just uh, strikes me that, um, yeah, political cartooning has been narrowed. I think it has a lot to do with budgeting and newspapers have dried up but let's be honest that uh you know legacy media like la times new york times um they they're able to survive but the smaller papers have uh have dried up they just don't have the market they don't have the budget to afford uh political cartoonists and even if uh there's syndicated cartooning available they still don't have the budget for it so it's 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 changed dramatically um i did start in the era of uh of actually drawing using pen and and paper and and ink 
so I can uh, admit to that much that I am that old. But uh, <laughs> yeah, the the the, uh, the dynamics have changed. Um, most political cartoonists uh, do it online now. Yeah, it definitely seems to be the case, and you know, one of the. I guess beneficial aspects of the digital age is that a lot of the political cartoons, including your own now come in color. And do you find that affords you another dynamic that you can add more to the messaging as a result? Yeah, there's uh, there is that, but I'm using a, uh, what I draw on is called a Wacom. So it's a, it's a tablet. It's actually like a screen and it's uh um, I can use a tablet and uh, a stylus pen, and I do all of my cartooning on that. The biggest advantage for me is that if I make a mistake, I can just erase it now. You know, back in the day when I was doing it on paper, if I made a mistake, I had to throw the whole thing in the trash. Uh, <laughs> now it's just so. it's layered, so I just get rid of that layer and I continue. Um, color is a huge advantage. Um, a lot of the expressive stuff that I do uh, in color, I just I couldn't imagine doing it in black and white. Uh, the you know the dynamics of, of color, like you know, uh, fire or the color of sky, um, uh, the the uh, the jaundiced look of uh, Joe Biden's face, uh, you just can't express that in the black and white. So now you can. And to great effect, yeah. Your your stuff is deeply entertaining on our site. Definitely appreciate you being there. Um, one of the things I have noticed in the electronic age is that conservative cartooning seems to be more accessible now because you know we were always confined to whatever cartoons were syndicated locally, or else if you got the national papers, you might catch one here or there. Now you can actually seek out conservative cartoonists and i find that to be both interesting but is it something that ever gets recognized nationally like say with the pulitzer committee well look the uh i'll I'll give you a specific example you know michael ramirez is i think uh the greatest uh, living cartoonist alive he's also conservative he's won several uh pulitzers i think he's won three there is zero chance that he will win another, and the reason he will never win again isn't because his art has deteriorated. It hasn't. His ideas are, are still dynamic and, and awesome. He will never win again because he's a conservative, and that's just, that's just the fact. And you can look at the Pulitzers. Pulitzers haven't, uh, I don't think that they have awarded a prize for political cartooning for the last three years, I think. It it might be just two. But you will never, ever see a conservative cartoonist win again, unless they're bashing Trump, and then that's a possibility. (laughs) Yeah, that's acceptable. Yeah, from the the point of view of uh, the Pulitzer Committee, they're just never going to consider somebody like Michael Ramirez or me. Um, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, I, I, I had to ask because I did look back at some of their past selections and such, and it, I think it went back five, six years, and I was still seeing entries that were of a, uh, a decided left-leaning nature with the pen, let's say. Yeah, 
Yeah, if I, you know, if I uh, deserted and went to the dark side, I could probably, uh, you know, find a home at some place like, oh, I don't know, the LA Times. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> as long uh, as you change your pen name when you do so. Yeah, 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 yeah. If uh, if the listeners don't know, I I used to um, cartoon for the LA Times, but um, yeah, the the. Uh, the possibility of a conservative ever winning or even being considered are are just it's not going to happen. Indeed, indeed, yeah. And I'll just encourage you know anybody listening that are interested in this sort of thing seek out those conservative alternatives. In fact, I think at Town Hall we have a string of uh, political cartoons you could link to and scroll through, and those are at least a mixed breed. You're going to get some conservative and. Uh, of course, if you go to Red State, look up Jim. If you uh, open up the page yeah. at the very top, select authors. Jim Thompson is his name, and you can click on it and see his varied work. Is there anything else you want to promote, Jim, before we cut to break? Hey, besides me, yeah, I think I'll just promote you. And Red State, it's an awesome place to go. You can see lots of uh, different uh, authors. And I am the, the, the sole political cartoonist on that site. Um, and you can just go to my author page, Jim Thompson, and uh, you can see some uh, some pretty cool political art. You can also you know, see me on uh, on Twitter as well. Awesomeness. All right, Jim, appreciate you coming on, and I do encourage anybody. Love your work, Jim. As always, we'll be in touch, and thanks for coming on. Awesome. We are back on the Pete Callender Show. This is Brad Slager sitting in for Pete. And we uh, just got through talking with Jim Thompson, political cartoonist from Red State. And we've got, I believe, on the line, Jeff, who wants to discuss cartoons. Hey, how you doing today? How's it going, Jeff? Good. Uh, I, when I called, the question was, you know, why do we not have any uh, political cartoons anymore? And part of that question was answered, and he was so true as far as for the uh, uh, liberal Democrats uh, taking over and banning a lot of that uh, from conservatives by the newspapers and so forth being told not to because they're pretty much liberal Democrats that own the five major publications. But even on Facebook or whatever, uh, I have been uh, labeled and kicked off quite a few times for expressing a political cartoon against uh, the Democrats, but yet you see all kinds of uh, liberal political camp- you know, cartoons that don't get banned. Uh, and it just kind of bothers me because uh, you know, someday there needs to be accountability, and that's why the Democrats did not you know, get rid of uh, 230 which is, you know, perfect for protection for the uh, publication companies. So I think that's what oh, no, that's, um, that is definitely a reality that has to be contended with there. I'll tell you, one of the other challenges, and this just came up, I've covered this uh, in my columns and such, last couple of weeks, Gannett Newspapers, this is the parent company of USA Today, they also own about 250, I want to say, 250 local newspapers you know if you go across the country and click on their websites you'll see a very familiar 
template with that blue border at the top that looks just like USA Today. That's a Gannett paper. And they just made the corporate decision a few weeks ago to significantly cut down a lot of their editorial content. Their op-ed pages are going to be trimmed down. Syndicated columns are being removed on a regular basis, as are political cartoons. So just think of that distribution. Even if they were part of a syndicate of political cartooning, that's going to be cut off now from hundreds of papers across the country. Well, when you look at 15, 20 years ago, there was over 150 owners of the papers. Nowadays, there's five owners that own all publications except for the independent guys that still are struggling. That kind of tells you, you know, what's going on with the uh, quote-unquote deep state across this country in the years that they've been working on uh, destroying it. No, no, it's definitely a uh, definitely a factor because that that uh, consolidation that you're talking about is largely due to the fact that print circulations are just plummeting on a yearly basis. I just saw a study. What was it? A few about a month or so ago that did a year over year measurement of paper circulation. You know, the hard copy circulation of papers, and I think it plummeted something like thirty percent from one year to the next, 21 to 22, basically, or 2020 to 21. That's significant. So everything is moving to digital, and that's being gathered up. So the benefit here, though, you know, like you said, you can't find any conservative cartooning. Granted, it's so... Right. I mean, you can find it if you dig for it, like... You go, like Tim said, but uh, it's the fact of why should I? Why should I not have the same uh, laugh that the uh, liberals get when they can post their political cartoon, but yet conservatives can't? Or they get booted or put in jail. 